you uh, have a Bible with you this morning, uh, I would encourage you to turn to, turn to Psalm 33. Uh, in the Black Pew Bibles, that's on page 463. Uh, now, sometimes with, when we look at the Psalms, we have some context to them, right? We have some idea of, of what was going on and why the Psalm was written. Uh, but this morning, we don't. We don't have an author. We don't have a context. We don't have a, uh, a clear picture of when it was written or why it was written. Um, and so we are going to launch right in, looking at this as a, um, as a timeless piece of poetry, really. So Psalm 33, starting in verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So like all good songs and all good poetry, there's a structure to what we read here. So the author begins um, with, this, with this exhortation to praise, this encouragement to praise. Um, and then he moves on to these three stanzas of praise of God, and then a recognition and examination of God's power and then he tells us how we're supposed to respond to that. So praise, power, response. So he begins by, by exhorting us, by encouraging us to worship, saying, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So this is what we are coming together to do in worship. Right? We are coming together into worship with joy and thanksgiving. That is what motivates our praise of God. Because it is right. It's right for us to praise him for who he is. And not just in a, in a spontaneous way, but in a skillful way. 
right? There is, there is skill associated with this. And why is it that we praise him? Well, we praise him, it says, because of who he is. Going on into verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So we praise him for the, for the nature and the quality of his work. We praise him for what he is doing here on this earth. And how he works, how he does that work, reveals who he is, right? You'll know a tree by its fruit. We know who he is by looking at what he does and how he does it, right? It says that his word, his actions, is, his word is upright. And so if his word is upright, he is upright without fault, without twist or distortion or perversion. It says that all of his work is done in faithfulness because he is faithful. It says that he loves righteousness and justice because he is righteous and just. And the earth is full of his steadfast love because he is overflowing with love. He is love itself. So that is why we praise him. And then the psalmist goes on to to look at the power of God. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep, the deeps in storehouses. So this is what he has done as a consequence of who he is. It's a demonstration of his power. Specifically, his ability to create something out of nothing. Creating something out of nothing. That's what it says in Hebrews 11.3 when it starts to talk about what faith is. It says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now every other creative act that we see in this world involves taking something that already exists and changing it, molding it, modifying it. If you think about knitting or sewing, right? Those are creative acts, but you're, not, but you're taking something that already exists and you're changing it, you're modifying it and making something new out of that. You look at building, right? When you build something, you're taking wood and nails and plywood and sheetrock and shingles and you're putting it together, you're changing it, you're modifying it, so that something new is created out of those raw materials. Even to the, to the most beautiful and most mysterious act of creation in this world, the growth of a child in the womb of its mother, even that creative act is taking the raw materials, right? The nutrients from our food, the, um, the the oxygen from the air, and building something new out of those things. But that is not how God created. God created out of nothing. There was nothing. And then he spoke, and there was something. That is the power that the psalmist is praising him for. And he is not just, so he is not just good, as it said in the last stanza, but he is powerful. It says that he piles up the seas. That's a reference to um, to Exodus 15, uh, relaying the story of the the Red Sea. 
When Moses writes, at the blast of your nostrils, the the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And so he is supremely powerful, more powerful than any other being or any other force, and it completely dwarfs any ability or power that we might have. So there's a lake in Africa that was created when they put in a dam, right? This is the largest man-made lake in the world. That lake contains 44 cubic miles of water. So it's three and a half miles from here to downtown Washburn. And so 44 cubic miles is a cube three and a half miles deep, three and a half miles wide, and three and a half miles tall, full of water. It's a tremendous amount of water. And that lake provides power and stability and food to an entire region of two different countries. But the volume of that lake is completely and utterly and unimaginably dwarfed by what the psalmist attributes to God. Piling up all of the seas in a heap. All of the water in the seas is somewhere around 320 million cubic miles. So mankind, at, its, at our greatest power, can stack up 44 cubic miles. And the creator of, heavens, of the heavens and the earth stacks up 320 million cubic miles. It's not even in the same league, right? We're not even playing the same sport here when we start to compare the combined power of mankind with the power of our Creator. He can do what we cannot even conceive of. And so how do we respond to that? What is the right response of mankind to a being who is unimaginably good and unimaginably powerful? It says in verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So because of who he is and because of what he has done, this is how we should respond to him. And the first response that the author gives is fear. It's fear. And there's a temptation here to to downplay that and say, oh, well, fear really means respect. Right? You just need to respect God for who he is. But there's an apt comparison that's made in in Hebrews 12 um, when the author says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. So it's dangerous for us to relate to God incorrectly. To come before him and worship in a, in a flippant or casual way. To treat him and his holiness and his love as cheap. That's dangerous for us. It's as dangerous as a consuming fire. And, and we're not talking about a little campfire here, right? We're not talking about your Lowe's fire pit that you put together in an afternoon. What you need to be picturing here is a forest fire. Raging. Consuming everything in its path, 
Trees are consumed, the air is sucked up, the heat is hot enough to cause things to spontaneously burst into flame. And when you understand the power, and when you understand the danger, when you're dealing with something like a forest fire, you need to take the necessary measures to keep yourself from getting burned. Because we cannot control We cannot influence something of that magnitude. And if we think that we're in control of that, we are not understanding the might and the power that is at work there. Now, a campfire, you'll look at and think, oh, this is nice. This is pleasant. Add some some ambiance. I love the warmth. But when we think of a fire and all we think of is that campfire, we forget the power, and we forget the intensity, and we forget the unstoppable march of a forest fire. But the campfire, God, that's what we want, right? We want something small, we want something manageable, we want something that we can control and put in a nice little ring on the ground and and keep it right there. The fire's there when we need it, and when we're done with it, we can walk away. But that's not who he is. He is a raging forest fire of holiness, of righteousness, and of justice, consuming everything in its path. And so we relate to him by fearing him and standing in awe of him. Because it is right for us to stand in awe of our creator. And unfortunately, today, I think that we've lost our sense of awe because everything ends up being mediated by these little screens, right? Telephone screen, computer screen, TV screen. We see, you see these grand waterfalls and, the, and these great mountains, and you see them on this little screen, and it removes your sense of awe. That ability to acknowledge our smallness and to acknowledge the greatness of the thing that we are standing in awe of. Uh, One of the things that we were able to do uh, while we were on vacation was uh, visit a little waterfall out in the North Main Woods. Just a little waterfall in the grand scheme of things. But when you come up against this little waterfall and you put yourself underneath it, there is a weight and there is a power to this microscopic little tiny Northern Main waterfall that completely obliterates your ability to resist it. It'll sweep you away. And that's, that's a little one. Imagine Niagara Falls. Imagine Angel Falls down in Venezuela, right? These towering, gigantic rivers of water cascading down these depths with this unimaginable power. It should make us feel small. It should make us feel utterly insignificant. And that is that sense of awe that this author is calling us to have in response to the power and the might and the goodness of God, to stand in awe of him, to be absolutely blown away by the beauty of what he's talking about. And he gives a very interesting reason. Gives a very interesting reason. For he spoke, it says in verse 9, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. 
there is no milkshake on this music stand, right? How loudly do I have to speak? How powerfully do I need to speak to cause a milkshake to come into being here? Milkshake. Maybe I need to be a little deeper. Milkshake. Louder, maybe? Milkshake! I can stand here and I can yell at this music stand until my throat is bleeding. I completely lack the ability to speak anything at all into being. I would be hard-pressed right now to make a milkshake using the things that I have in my refrigerator. But yet he speaks and it comes into being. He says, stop, and it stops. I can't stop this pencil from falling to the ground when I let go of it. But yet he speaks and the mountains stand up. The seas stay where they are. This is power to stand in awe of. It is good and right for us to stand in reverent fear and awe of the holy and just God of creation who brought all things into existence by the power of his word alone. So we have praise, we have power, and then we have our response. And he begins again by going back to praise in verse 10. It says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So the counsel and plans of God stand forever. They are unstoppable. They are unchangeable. And he draws this contrast with the counsel and plans of the nations. Right? All of those plans are frustrated. They're brought to nothing. They're nullified. They're completely thrown out the window. And it says that he actively does that. He brings their plans to nothing. He brings them to frustration. He is actively opposed to their plans because their plans are actively opposed to his plans. You see, he loves righteousness and he loves justice. The plans of the people love iniquity. And they love transgression. And so because he is powerful and because he loves righteousness and justice and their plans are sinful, he will thwart them. He will bring them to nothing. He will actively work against them. And he can do that because he has that great power that we've talked about. And if that's the case, then if there is a, a group of people that the Lord is working in favor of, they will be blessed greatly. And that's what the psalmist says. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So who is that? Who is it that God has chosen as his heritage? Well, the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 that that is us that that is the body of believers, the universal church. He writes and says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this is not, then, an endorsement of a, of a geopolitical Israel. Right? This is not Rome. This is not Russia. This is not the United States. But this is a nation that is greater than any line drawn across the surface of the earth. This is a nation that is greater than any law, any constitution, greater than any army has ever been able to conquer. This is a nation of the servants of the King of Kings that has endured trial and tribulation and persecution and famine and nakedness and sword and believes what? Believes that in all of those things and has shown in history through all of those things that they are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ their Lord. And blessed are they indeed. Friends, we, the universal church of Jesus Christ, are those people we are that blessed nation that God has chosen as his heritage. And God is actively working for us. It picks up in verse 13 with a further discussion of the Lord's power. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. So because of the position of power that the Lord sits in, he looks down on creation and in his power he is at work to fashion the hearts of people now remember these are the same people these are the same nations that are opposed to his plan of righteousness and justice but some of them some of them he reaches in he reaches down and he changes their heart to be a reflection of his heart so these blessed people, this holy nation, are people who have had their hearts changed. But despite the change of heart that they have been given, there is still a temptation to look to the wrong thing for salvation. Right? A great army, the strength of a warrior, the power of a war horse. These were things that all had the appearance of power. But in comparison to the power of God to speak and effect change, to speak and create, those things are nothing. All of those expressions of power are nothing in comparison to the power of the Lord. Right? You look at the B-52, you look at the, the F-22, you look at these armies and, and battalions and divisions of tanks. They're nothing. They're nothing. You look at all of the votes, you look at all of the lobbyists, you look at all of the laws that have been written, they are nothing. You look at all of the money, and all of the power, and all of the influence, all of these things promise that we can trust them, they promise that we can get what we want from them, and they are lying to us. None of these things can do what only God can do. 
specifically here, observe their lives intimately and shape the heart of man. You see, an army can conquer. Laws can prohibit. Power can oppress. But none of those things can change the heart of men. Not one of them. And instead, they often have the opposite effect. But it is God alone who can shape the hearts of mankind. And so we respond. We respond to the power of God. In verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So because of who he is and because of what he does, this is how we respond. We respond in that right fear of the Lord because of his power and his goodness coming into contrast with our weakness and our depravity. We should fear the Lord who is a consuming fire. But, but at the same time, we hope. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Because as we hope in him, as we trust him, as we rely on him, he can save. The powers of this world cannot, but he is able to. He is able, it says, to keep us alive in famine. There's no food. It's not that there's a shortage or that we can't get the things that we want, but there is nothing to eat. And he sustains us even when the biochemical responses of our bodies say that we should die. And he saves us even, it says, from death. It say, he saves us from death. He changes our hearts and reshapes them according to his perfect will. And the psalmist closes out this song by urging his hearers and us today to respond. It says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So this is what we need to remember as we leave worship this morning. We must wait, we must trust, and we must hope. We have to wait because we have plans, right? I've got my idea of how my life should work out. I've got my idea of how the lives of those around me should work out. Has anybody ever observed that sometimes your plan doesn't quite go the way that you would like it to? Is that just me? Okay, I guess that's just me. That's fine. Um, but we've got plans. And sometimes we are frustrated in those plans. And when we are frustrated in those plans, it's because God has frustrated those plans. It says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. Because... In our frustration, those are plans that we have had that go against God's plans, that run contrary to the work that he is doing in this world. And so if we do not wait on him, if we are not patient 
for him to unfold his plan, we become frustrated and we want to see our plan unfolded. And so not waiting leads to that frustration. Why am I not getting my way here? Why is this thing that I desperately want to have happen not happening yet? Why isn't God in more of a hurry? But that frustration reveals to us an arrogance, a pride that says that I know better than God. I know what should be happening here, but God isn't making it happen. And God should make happen what I want to happen. But his timing, his plan is perfect. There are no circumstances that he doesn't see. There is nothing that happens that he doesn't understand. This is why the writer in Proverbs 3 tells us that we need to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That's your plan. That's your idea. That's your plan for your life. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. We must wait and we must trust in him because he sees it all he knows it all he has power and dominion over it all and he is good and he is faithful and he is righteous and he is just so we can trust that his plan is good and perfect and his plan is good and perfect for us and when our plan does not line up with his plan that is because our plan is not good for us. And that frees us to be faithful and obedient servants, trusting Him at all times and in everything. But not trusting, not trusting Him leads in the end to fear. Because if we do not trust Him, then we wonder, what's, what's going to happen next? Are my needs going to be met? Will I have something to eat? Will I have a house to live in? Will, will something bad happen to me? That is the opposite of the trust that we are being called to have here. Trust in a God who is good. Trust in a God who loves. Trust in a God who is faithful and has power and dominion over all things. And that Willingness to wait upon him and to trust him leads us to hope. A hope in his good plan. A hope in his power and in his faithfulness. Because it is God alone. It is God alone who can deliver us from all of our enemies and all of our trials and all of our tribulations. It is God alone who can deliver us, it says, from famine and from death. Because if he has power over all things and is perfectly good and perfectly just and he has chosen us as the church, as believers, to be his special people, then we will be blessed. And there is nothing... There is nothing, not even death itself, that will be able to prevent God from fulfilling his good plans for his chosen people. And that gives us a hope, not a despair, not a resignation, but a hope that is based on and enabled by the steadfast love of God. This is what Paul was writing about in Romans 8. I was going to excerpt it, but I'm going to read the whole chunk here. 
He writes in Romans 8, starting in verse 18, that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suggested it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we, are, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is, God, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am, certain that, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no power, there is no pain, there is no person, there is no principality who will ever be able to limit or frustrate or thwart or dissuade God from his good plan towards us. There is nothing that will ever be able to separate us from his love, not even death itself. Because he has come in Christ Jesus and paid for sin on the cross. And having conquered sin, he died. But did not remain in the grave, but rose again. And in rising, he conquered death. And he has gone to prepare a place for us. And he will return to save us from every last lingering peace and effect of sin, to live with us forever in his new creation, freed from sin, from pain, freed from suffering, from decay, and free from death itself. 
and for all who have trusted in him fully and trusted in him alone, not in the worldly power of the army or the warrior or the war horse, but trusted in him and in him alone, will live with him in this restored and renewed kingdom for all of eternity. That's what we're waiting for. He is our help and our shield. And we trust in his goodness and in his faithfulness to fulfill his promises towards us. And that brings gladness to our hearts. We wait and we trust and we hope in him and in his return. Even as today we get to taste and experience the first fruits of that kingdom, our hope is in the fulfillment and the completion of all of those things. Let's pray together. Father, this is what we want to do and this is what we struggle to do. We want to wait upon you. We want to trust you. We want to have hope in you. But Father, none of these things are conjured through the strength of our will. We can't just think ourselves into waiting for you. We, just, we can't just think ourselves and will ourselves into trusting you and hoping in you. But we ask that you would give us these things as gifts, Father. That you would give us the patience to wait upon you and your plan. We ask that you would give us the grace that we need to be able to trust you fully and completely and trust you alone. And Father, we ask that you would fill us with the great gospel hope. We ask that you would fill us with a hope that overflows, a hope that we have to give an explanation for to a world that is confused when they look at us and see us. So Father, we pray that you would enable us to do these things, to wait upon you, to trust in you, and to hope in you through the midst of whatever it is that you have laid out for us in the days or weeks or months or years until Jesus comes again. Because you are the one that we wait for. You are the one that we trust in. and You are the one that we hope for. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.